0: No. Didn't forget my lesson, but just something I needed. I'm Jim Dearman. <laughs> I'm the first speaker on the summer series here at White Oak. It's good to be with you. Been looking forward to this. It is good to see everybody tonight. We are beginning our summer series tonight, and we are dealing with a theme that is, of course, vitally important, always timely, and that is the the origin of ethics is the first lesson in the series entitled Ethics for Eternity. Ethics for Eternity. When you hear the word ought, when you hear the word ought, what does that suggest? How many times in your life have have you used that word? either concerning yourself or, or someone else. I ought to have done such and such, or he ought to have done such and such, or she ought to have done this, or she ought to have, have done that. What do we mean when we use that word like that? Well, the dictionary says that it is used to indicate duty or correctness, typically when criticizing someone's actions, as in they ought to respect the law. And so the idea of ought, and what is suggested by it, ought to tell us something about ethics, something very important about ethics. You see virtually every time we use the word ought, we are admitting something. We're admitting to a standard of morality or to a standard of ethics that had to have a beginning had to have an origin because the word ought suggests that there's something that is good to do and something that is not good to do. If you ought to do something and ought not to do something then obviously that suggests some standard by which you are using that term, that word ought. But the key question is this, what is the origin of ethics, and that's my assigned topic tonight. That will be the focus of our lesson tonight as we begin this summer series. As we said, entitled "Ethics for Eternity," and we look forward to the other lessons in this series. Some of which will be delivered by our own uh, men, as I mentioned earlier. Tommy Leslie will be talking about the Christian ethic uh, uh, next week. Steve Pell, senior, one of our elders, will be dealing with situation. Uh, Ethics, Preston Edmondson will be a part of the series. Brian is a part of the series. And as I have said before, we're blessed to have men who have the ability to speak, the desire to speak, and the knowledge of the Word of God uh, to stand before the congregation and to share that word and that knowledge with them. We appreciate all of these men and others who will be coming from other congregations as guest speakers to participate in this series. Now this is the 4th of July, let me ask you this, where does this night, this evening, the 4th of July, 2012, find us morally, find us ethically as a nation? In order to answer that question, I want to go back 21 years to a statement, to a statement that Wayne Jackson made at the Shenandoah Lectures out in Texas as he wrote and spoke about the topic, Ancient Ethics in a Modern World. And part of what he said in that lesson was this, there are ominous signs that America's future may hold some of the worst of times. For it is an undeniable fact that this country is rapidly moving away from its early moorings, that we are a, quote, nation under God, end quote. The truth is, man is becoming increasingly ambitious to be his own god, The words of the infidel poet William Ernest Henley in his infamous composition Invictus reflect the attitude of many in contemporary society, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. Evolutionary scientist George G. Simpson concluded one of his books by saying that man is his own master. He can and must decide and manage his own destiny. Brother Jackson says, Such a philosophy, if widely accepted, will spell national disaster. Later in that lesson he said, In his egotistical pride, man has drifted farther and farther from God. Humanity progressively attempts to cut loose from the moral, ethical, and spiritual standards of the Bible. It is absolutely safe to say that the average person of our day... Knows far less about the Bible than the common man of a half century past. And then he asks this question. What will happen as science further accelerates while man gets farther from his creator? And then he makes this statement in regard to that. The possibilities are staggering. The possibilities are staggering. That was 1991. This is 2012. Let me rephrase his last statement. It is not the possibilities that are staggering in 2012. It is the realities that are staggering in 2012. In that same lectureship at Shenandoah in 1991, David Leip, David Leip identified the crux of the ethical problem in a lesson entitled, The Foundations of Morality. And just a brief quote or two from that lesson, he said, Time Magazine printed an article May twenty fifth, 1987, that's a while ago. The article was entitled, Looking to its Roots, and the article explores the ethical confusion characteristic of American society today. Then he goes on to talk a little more about the article and said it notes another interesting statement by Joseph O'Hare, president of Fordham University, and here's the quote from O'Hare. We've had a traditional set of standards that have been challenged and found wanting or no longer fashionable. Now there don't seem to be any moral landmarks at all. That's an article from 1987. But that's the key really, as David Life expresses it in his lesson, the foundations of morality, the foundations of ethics, the origin of ethics. What are the possibilities as we explore the origin of ethics? I suggest to you there are only two possibilities for the foundation or for the origin of ethics. Here they are, secular or spiritual. That's it. The foundations of morality, the origin of ethics, the origin has to be either secular, completely secular, or spiritual. If they are spiritual, the foundations. If the origin is spiritual, then the spiritual origin leads us to God, our Redeemer, our refuge, and our rock. You know what the secular leads you to? A rock. Not the rock and Redeemer, but a rock. That's it. I'm dead serious. That's it. Because the secularist says this is where it all began. Mere matter. And the secularist has to contend that somehow mere matter became moral. That somehow the evolutionary process produced in man a system of morals, a system of ethics. Which is more plausible to believe? Which is more reasonable to believe? For which origin is there the greatest evidence? The secular origin for ethics or the spiritual origin for ethics? Remember, the secularist contends that there is no God. But at the same time, he strongly affirms that man should behave morally and should behave ethically. But he very strongly at the same time contends there is no God. But you need to do good. And even the well-known atheist, Richard Dawkins, author of The God Delusion, and um, uh, other uh, writings, including uh, one from which I will quote in a moment, The Selfish Gene, uh, is the name of that work. Even Dawkins admits to the existence of right and wrong. He knows there is right, he knows there is wrong, he admits it. But where did right and wrong originate? If there is no absolute standard of right, then how can anything be absolutely wrong? Let me read you a quote from Dawkins that I found on the uh, website, existenceofgod.com. And in one section, dealing with the moral argument for the existence of God, the author of this website deals with uh, evolutionary ethics as a supposed objection or answer to the moral argument? How does one who's an atheist seek to answer the moral argument? And we'll talk more about the moral argument in just a moment. Well, this author says that a more comprehensive, a comprehensible attempt to refute the moral argument suggests that a naturalistic explanation of morality can be given by the theory of evolution. In other words, the theory of evolution can explain morals, can explain morals. Here's how they seek to do it. Given a world in which the resources necessary to support life are scarce and danger is all around us, people will have to compete to survive. Those that compete well will survive and reproduce more people like them. Those that compete poorly will disappear. Groups of people that cooperate are more likely to survive and reproduce than are groups of people that do not. Natural selection then will favor those forms of behavior that we call moral because they have survival value. Over time, this process will lead to a moral instinct in human beings, a natural propensity to act well. Can you believe that? Well, the author of this website doesn't believe it. What about altruistic altruistic behavior? He says, altruistic behavior, here's the response to that. Altruistic behavior, by definition, is not in one's own interest. The extreme of altruism, giving up one's life in order that others might live, that's the extreme, isn't it, (laughs) of altruism, is is giving up one's life in order that others might live, cannot be the result of conditioning through natural selection. Those who give up their lives for others are eliminated from the gene pool. Extreme self-sacrifice is a trait that natural selection not only does not encourage, but should even eliminate from society. The selfish are more likely to survive and reproduce than are the selfless. And then, the author of the website says, Even the foremost advocate of evolution theory, Richard Dawkins, recognizes this. And here's the quote from Dawkins in his book, The Selfish Gene. Quote, My own feeling is that a human society based simply on the genes law of universal ruthless selfishness would be a very nasty society in which to live. But unfortunately, however much we may deplore something, it does not stop it being true. Be warned that if you wish as I do to build a society in which individuals cooperate generously and unselfishly towards a common good, you can expect little help from biological nature. He's right. You can't expect help from biological nature to, to produce a society that is moral and good. Now listen to what he says then. Let us try to teach generosity and altruism because we are born selfish. Let us try to teach generosity and altruism because we're born selfish. Well, a lot of the question I would ask Richard Dawkins is, from what source do we teach unselfishness and altruism? What's our standard by which we teach it? Who establishes that standard? You see, if the standard from which we teach these things that produce morals and ethics, if the standard is not spiritual, that is, if it is not from God, then the standard becomes what? subjective, personally subjective. You've got your standard, I've got mine. If there is no absolute standard, if God is not the author of that standard, if he is not the ultimate moral source, then every person would have the right to set his own standard or choose to have no standard at all. And obviously the present moral state in America indicates many have chosen the latter. Not to have a standard at all. But the secularist may argue that, well, but there's human nature. What about human nature? I mean, after all, human nature is indeed a standard to which we may go to determine acceptable moral or ethical behavior, is it not? Human nature? Human nature apart from God? Human nature apart from the divine nature? No. You see, if the atheist separates human nature from the divine nature, from the existence of God, and he does, he cannot appeal to human nature to establish a moral standard. Because you're back then to simply man being no more than a graduate ape and just another animal. What does the Bible say about human nature as it relates to the nature of God? Remember in the beginning... Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And I know every one of us here tonight knows that that likeness and that image has nothing to do with physical attributes, It has everything to do with moral and spiritual attributes. That is the likeness that we bear to our Creator. It is a spiritual likeness. It is a moral likeness. He is the perfect moral being and the Godhead determined to make man in the image of God. That is spiritually and morally and not physically. And so with the secularist, ethics is subjective personally subjective. And if it's subjective, can it change? Indeed it can. From one day to the next. Not only can it change from one day to the next, it can be completely reversed from one day to the next. An action that is deemed right today can be deemed completely wrong tomorrow. If ethics is indeed personally subjective. Someone says, Well, what about the conscience? How does the conscience fit into all of this discussion? Is the conscience a safe guide? Let's think for a moment about the Apostle Paul. And we've talked about him some in Sunday morning Bible class as we've studied the book of Acts. Think about Paul when he was still Saul of Tarsus. Before his conversion, he was a persecutor of Christians. And notice what he said about conscience during that time when he was Saul the persecutor. He's Paul the Apostle as he speaks in Acts 23.1, but he's talking about the time before he was Paul the Apostle when he was still a persecutor of the church. And what does he say as he looks steadfastly at that council, the Sanhedrin? He says, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. I have lived in good conscience before God until this day. Again, in Acts twenty-four sixteen, he said, "This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men." But what did he say in Acts twenty-six, verses nine and ten? He said, as he looked back upon his past, he said, "Indeed." I myself thought, that I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I have lived in all good conscience until this day, always sought to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Yes, I believe those statements are absolutely true. But he also was a persecutor of Christians consenting to their death during that time that he was doing it in good conscience. And in 1 Timothy 1, 12 and 13, he wrote these words, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. I did it in good conscience. Believed with all my heart I was doing God's will. But I did it in unbelief. Notice, in unbelief. In other words, that's what? That's lack of knowledge. Lack of knowledge. Yet his conscience did not condemn him. Why not? Because he was acting on the knowledge he had at the time. And the knowledge that he had at the time enabled his conscience to approve his actions. But that was the problem. His actions were not proper actions. And that's the point of the conscience. The conscience will only approve or disapprove of what we believe to be right. And, wrong. and so if our intellect, if our intellect has not been properly educated, in other words, if we have not taken into our mind what is proper, what is right, what is moral, then we can do wrong and our conscience will never condemn us for doing wrong because the intellect hasn't been educated right. And Paul is a classic example. But he was a man who always wanted to do what was right. It's just that he had to be taught right. And as soon as he was taught right, what did he do? He did right. And therefore his conscience was able to approve of those actions because he knew those actions to be right according to what? According to a standard. The standard. Standard. And how did he feel when he, having persecuted the church for so long and so fervently, how did he feel when he realized that what he had been doing was wrong, though he believed it to be right? He felt guilt, didn't he? And the existence of conscience implies the possibility of guilt, doesn't it? The conscience itself implies that there is the possibility of guilt, because the conscience may indeed convict us of guilt. We feel guilty when we violate the conscience, and of course, unless that's the case—that it's the case—that the conscience has become seared as with a hot iron, as the Scripture says—we fight against doing what's right for so long that we finally sear our consciences. That's a distinct possibility. The Bible makes that affirmation. Well, let me tell you something that I've mentioned from this pulpit before, and that is that guilt is a gift from God. And that statement goes against the predominant thinking in the society, I believe, in which we live today. There are very few people probably out here in the world who would consider guilt to be a gift from God, but it is really if you'll stop and think about it. Guilt is a gift from God. And the existence of guilt is proof of God's existence. And that gets us back to the moral argument for the existence of God. And the way I like to present it, and I presented it here before in a lesson quite some time ago, I like to see three basic arguments for the existence of God, very simply reminded, uh, that we're simply reminded of by the name of God himself. G, guilt. O, order. D, design. And it's not our purpose to discuss order and design in the context of this lesson. But they're powerful arguments. The argument from order or the cosmological arguments, the fancy name for it, the fact that this cosmos is here, it is an effect. It's an orderly effect. It is obviously an effect that has to have an adequate and antecedent cause. And the only adequate and antecedent cause that we can logically arrive at is the Creator Himself. It's a powerful argument for God's existence. Cosmos, what does it mean? Order. The very word cosmos means order. There's order in this universe. It is an effect from an obvious greater antecedent cause. Then design. Design. The teleological argument, the fancy name for that. Design. Where there is design, there must be a designer. And obviously there is intricate design Everywhere you look, and that includes looking in the mirror, where you'll find one of the greatest achievements of complex design that you could possibly contemplate, the human body. And then the mind, oh, oh man can't even understand it at all. Not, I mean, he hadn't touched the hem of the garment in understanding that aspect. God, guilt, order, design. But the guilt suggests the moral Argument, And the moral argument is equally powerful with the argument from order, it is equally powerful with the argument from design. Because it is totally illogical for the secularists to claim that we can have morals, an absolute standard of right and wrong without the perfect moral being who gave us that standard. How is guilt a gift from God, though? You see that as you look at the first conversion ever recorded in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter and the other apostles preached the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time, there were those on that occasion who cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What caused them to cry out, men and brethren, what shall we do? Acts 2, 37. Guilt. Deep guilt. Penetrating guilt caused by the realization that they had crucified the very Son of the living God. And they wanted out of that guilt. Men and brethren, what shall we do? That is, what shall we do to be saved? And Peter's response as it is recorded was, Repent and let every one of you be baptized. In the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. He didn't start with belief. They already evidenced that they believed by saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? We believe what you've said. Now what else do we need to do? Repent and let every one of you be baptized for the remission of sins. What do we then read? Then they who what? Gladly received his word. Now we see the transformation process beginning from guilt to gladness. Could there have been gladness without the guilt? No, because without the realization of their guilt, there would have been no motivation to try to seek the gladness. They would have been perfectly satisfied in their sinful state. But they were pricked or cut to the heart. Guilty. And it caused those of good and honest hearts to cry out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And that same guilt will cause good and honest hearts to make that same cry, that same plea today. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. They were added unto them in that day about 3,000 souls. And then what does the next verse tell us in Acts 2.42? And they continued steadfastly. In the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. They continued what? Steadfastly in what? The apostles' doctrine. What is that? Absolute truth. The apostles' doctrine is equivalent to absolute truth. The apostles' doctrine is equivalent to an absolute standard to which all those who obeyed the gospel then and since then can and should adhere to. To be pleasing to God. It is absolutely incomprehensible that someone would contend for objective right and wrong. That is, that some actions are always right and some are always wrong and then make that contention from an atheistic perspective and say that that absolute right and wrong developed from evolution. Let me close with a quote from the late Thomas B. Warren, again from that same lectureship. In his lesson, we can know that God is. And this was an article that appeared in the book that first appeared in the student newspaper of the University of Mississippi at Oxford, Mississippi. But here's the statement. Every doctrine which implies a false doctrine is itself false. Let every man who affirms that there is no God face up to the implications of affirming such a proposition. If there is no God, then there are no absolutes. If there are no absolutes, then there is no objective morality. If there is no objective morality, then one, there is no moral distinction to be made between lying and telling the truth. Two, there is no moral distinction to be made between vicious murder and the saving of a human life. Three, There is no moral distinction between the carnal knowledge involved in the rape-murder of an eight-year-old girl and the sexual pleasure of a husband and wife who truly love one another. Four, there is no distinction between the action of stealing food from a starving child or of giving food to a starving child. And five, there is no distinction between bashing out the brains of a sick child And providing the tender loving care for that infant which enables the child to regain his health. And at the conclusion, he writes, While there are many other evidences of the existence of Almighty God, from the fact that we all know that we ought, and we're back to that word again, ought to act in a certain fashion, And from the knowledge that there is the ultimate objective standard, each of us should deduce that God does exist. No man can logically and consistently acknowledge that real right and wrong does exist and then deny that God exists. Having deduced that God exists, each of us should then set for himself the task of ascertaining just what the will of God is. The Bible is the inspired, infallible Word of God. And then he says, and determine that we shall do our very best to live in harmony with that will. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said, but my words will not pass away. And Peter in 2 Peter 3, 9 through 11, reminds us the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some count slackness but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? In holy conduct and godliness. What manner of persons ought we to be? The kind who live holy lives and godly lives, seeking to pattern those lives like the origin of ethics, the God of heaven. I appreciate your good attention tonight.